When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Part 6, Chapter 6 of Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Translated by Constance Garnett, 1861-1946. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 6, Chapter 6 He spent that evening till ten o'clock, going from one low haunt to another. Katya, too, turned up and sang another gutter song. How a certain villain and tyrant began kissing Katya. Svidrigailov treated Katya and the organ-grinder and some singers and the waiters and two little clerks. He was particularly drawn to these clerks by the fact that they both had crooked noses, one bent to the left and the other to the right. They took him finally to a pleasure-garden, where he paid for their entrance. There was one lanky three-year-old pine-tree and three bushes in the garden, besides a vauxhall, which was in reality a drinking-bar where tea too was served and there were a few green tables and chairs standing round it. A chorus of wretched singers and a drunken but exceedingly depressed German clown from Munich, with a red nose, entertained the public. The clerks quarrelled with some other clerks, and a fight seemed imminent. Svidrigailov was chosen to decide the dispute. He listened to them for a quarter of an hour, but they shouted so loud that there was no possibility of understanding them. The only fact that seemed certain was that one of them had stolen something, and had even succeeded in selling it on the spot to a Jew, but would not share the spoil with his companion. Finally, it appeared that the stolen object was a teaspoon belonging to the Vauxhall. It was missed, and the affair began to seem troublesome. Svidrigailov paid for the spoon, got up, and walked out of the garden. It was about six o'clock. He had not drunk a drop of wine all this time, and had ordered tea more for the sake of appearances than anything. It was a dark and stifling evening. Threatening storm-clouds came over the sky about ten o'clock. There was a clap of thunder, and the rain came down like a waterfall. The water fell not in drops, but beat on the earth in streams. There were flashes of lightning every minute, and each flash lasted while one could count five. Drenched to the skin, he went home, locked himself in, opened the bureau, took out all his money, and tore up two or three papers. Then, putting the money in his pocket, he was about to change clothes, but looking out of the window and listening to the thunder and the rain, he gave up the idea, took up his hat, and went out of the room without locking the door. He went straight to Sonia. She was at home. She was not alone. The four Kapernaumov children were with her. She was giving them tea. She received Svidrigailov in respectful silence, looking wonderingly at his soaking clothes. The children all ran away at once, in indescribable terror. Svidrigailov sat down at the table and asked Sonia to sit beside him. She timidly prepared to listen. "'I may be going to America, Sofia Semyonovna,' said Svidrigailov, "'and, as I am probably seeing you for the last time, I have come to make some arrangements. Well, did you see the lady today? I know what she said to you, you need not tell me.' 
Sonya made a movement and blushed. Those people have their own way of doing things. As to your sisters and your brother, they are really provided for, and the money assigned to them I put into safe-keeping, and have received acknowledgments. You had better take charge of the receipts, in case anything happens. Here, take them. Well now, that's settled. Here are three five-percent bonds to the value of three thousand roubles. Take those for yourself, entirely for yourself, and let that be strictly between ourselves, so that no one knows of it, whatever you hear. You will need the money, for to go on living in the old way, Sofia Semyonovna, is bad, and besides, there is no need for it now. I am so much indebted to you, and so are the children and my stepmother, said Sonia hurriedly. And if I'd said so little, please don't consider. That's enough, that's enough. But as for the money, Arkady Ivanovitch, I am very grateful to you, but I don't need it now. I can always earn my own living. Don't think me ungrateful. If you are so charitable, that money—it's for you, for you, Sofia Semyonovna, and please don't waste words over it. I haven't time for it. You will want it. Rodion Romanovich has two alternatives—a bullet in the brain or Siberia." Sonia looked wildly at him and started. Don't be uneasy. I know all about it from himself, and I am not a gossip. I won't tell anyone. It was good advice when you told him to give himself up and confess. It would be much better for him. Well, if it turns out to be Siberia, he will go and you will follow him. That's so, isn't it? And if so, you'll need money. You'll need it for him, do you understand? Giving it to you is the same as my giving it to him. Besides, you promised Amalia Ivanovna to pay what's owing. I heard you. How can you undertake such obligations so heedlessly, Sofia Semyonovna? It was Katerina Ivanovna's debt and not yours, so you ought not to have taken any notice of the German woman. You can't get through the world like that. If you are ever questioned about me, tomorrow or the day after you'll be asked, don't say anything about my coming to see you now, and don't show the money to anyone or say a word about it. Well now, good-bye." He got up. My greetings to Rodion Romanovich. By the way, you'd better put the money for the present in Mr. Razumian's keeping. You know Mr. Razumian? Of course you do. He's not a bad fellow. Take it to him tomorrow, or when the time comes. Until then, hide it carefully." Sonya too jumped up from her chair and looked in dismay at Svidrigailov. She longed to speak, to ask a question but for the first moments she did not dare and did not know how to begin. "'How can you—how can you be going now, in such rain?' "'Why, be starting for America, and be stopped by rain? Ha, ha! Good-bye, Sofia Semyonovna, my dear. Live and live long. You will be of use to others. By the way, tell Mr. Razumian I send my greetings to him. Tell him Arkady Ivanovich Svedrigailov sends his greetings.' Be sure to." He went out, leaving Sonya in a state of wondering anxiety and vague apprehension. It appeared afterwards that on the same evening, at twenty past eleven, he made another very eccentric and unexpected visit. The rain still persisted. Drenched to the skin, he walked into the little flat where the parents of his betrothed lived, in Third Street in Vasilyevsky Island. He knocked some time before he was admitted and his visit at first caused great perturbation. 
but Svidrigailov could be very fascinating when he liked, so that the first, and indeed very intelligent surmise of the sensible parents, that Svidrigailov had probably had so much to drink that he did not know what he was doing, vanished immediately. The decrepit father was wheeled in to see Svidrigailov by the tender and sensible mother, who as usual began the conversation with various irrelevant questions. She never asked a direct question, but began by smiling and rubbing her hands, and then, if she were obliged to ascertain something, for instance, when Svidrigailov would like to have the wedding, she would begin by interested and almost eager questions about Paris and the court life there, and only by degrees brought the conversation round to Third Street. On other occasions this had of course been very impressive, but this time Arkady Ivanovitch seemed particularly impatient, and insisted on seeing his betrothed at once, though he had been informed, to begin with, that she had already gone to bed. The girl, of course, appeared. Svidrigailov informed her at once that he was obliged by very important affairs to leave Petersburg for a time, and therefore brought her fifteen thousand roubles and begged her accept them as a present from him, as he had long been intending to make her this trifling present before their wedding. The logical connection of the present with his immediate departure and the absolute necessity of visiting them for that purpose in pouring rain at midnight was not made clear but it all went off very well. Even the inevitable ejaculations of wonder and regret, the inevitable questions were extraordinarily few and restrained. On the other hand, the gratitude expressed was most glowing and was reinforced by tears from the most sensible of mothers. Svidrigailov got up, laughed, kissed his betrothed, patted her cheek, declared he would soon come back, and, noticing in her eyes, together with childish curiosity, a sort of earnest dumb inquiry, reflected and kissed her again, though he felt sincere anger inwardly at the thought that his present would be immediately locked up in the keeping of the most sensible of mothers. He went away, leaving them all in a state of extraordinary excitement, but the tender mamma, speaking quietly in a half-whisper, settled some of the most important of their doubts, concluding that Svidrigailov was a great man a man of great affairs and connections and of great wealth, there was no knowing what he had in his mind. He would start off on a journey and give away money just as the fancy took him, so that there was nothing surprising about it. Of course it was strange that he was wet through, but Englishmen, for instance, are even more eccentric, and all these people of high society didn't think of what was said of them and didn't stand on ceremony. Possibly, indeed, he came like that on purpose to show that he was not afraid of anyone. Above all, not a word should be said about it, for God knows what might come of it, and the money must be locked up, and it was most fortunate that Fedosia, the cook, had not left the kitchen. And above all, not a word must be said to that old cat, Madame Reslich, and so on and so on. They sat up whispering till two o'clock but the girl went to bed much earlier, amazed and rather sorrowful. Svidrigailov, meanwhile, exactly at midnight, crossed the bridge on the way back to the mainland. The rain had ceased and there was a roaring wind. He began shivering, and for one moment he gazed at the black waters of the little Neva with a look of special interest, even inquiry. But he soon felt it very cold, standing by the water. He turned and went towards Y Prospect. He walked along that endless street for a long time, 
almost half an hour, more than once stumbling in the dark on the wooden pavement, but continually looking for something on the right side of the street. He had noticed passing through this street lately that there was a hotel somewhere towards the end, built of wood, but fairly large, and its name he remembered was something like Andrianople. He was not mistaken. The hotel was so conspicuous in that godforsaken place that he could not fail to see it even in the dark. It was a long, blackened wooden building, and in spite of the late hour there were lights on in the windows and signs of life within. He went in and asked a ragged fellow who met him in the corridor for a room. The latter, scanning Svidrigailov, pulled himself together and led him at once to a close and tiny room in the distance, at the end of the corridor, under the stairs. There was no other, all were occupied. The ragged fellow looked inquiringly. "'Is there tea?' asked Svidrigailov. "'Yes, sir.' "'What else is there?' "'Veal, vodka, savories.' "'Bring me tea and veal.' "'And you want nothing else?' he asked with apparent surprise. "'Nothing, nothing.' The ragged man went away, completely disillusioned. "'It must be a nice place.' thought Svidrigailov. How was it I didn't know it? I expect I look as if I came from a café chantant and have had some adventure on the way. It would be interesting to know who stayed here." He lighted the candle and looked at the room more carefully. It was a room so low-pitched that Svidrigailov could only just stand up in it. It had one window. The bed, which was very dirty, and the plain stained chair and table almost filled it up. The walls looked as though they were made of planks, covered with shabby paper, so torn and dusty that the pattern was indistinguishable, though the general color, yellow, could still be made out. One of the walls was cut short by the sloping ceiling, though the room was not an attic but just under the stairs. Svidrigailov set down the candle, sat down on the bed, and sank into thought but a strange persistent murmur which sometimes rose to a shout in the next room attracted his attention. The murmur had not ceased from the moment he entered the room. He listened. Someone was upbraiding and almost tearfully scolding, but he heard only one voice. Svidrigailov got up, shaded the light with his hand, and at once he saw light through a crack in the wall. He went up and peeped through. The room, which was somewhat larger than his, had two occupants. One of them, a very curly-headed man with a red inflamed face, was standing in the pose of an orator, without his coat, with his legs wide apart to preserve his balance, and smiting himself on the breast. He reproached the other with being a beggar, with having no standing whatever. He declared that he had taken the other out of the gutter, and he could turn him out when he liked, and that only the finger of Providence sees it all. The object of his reproaches was sitting in a chair, and had the air of a man who wants dreadfully to sneeze but can't. He sometimes turned sheepish and befogged eyes on the speaker, but obviously had not the slightest idea what he was talking about, and scarcely heard it. A candle was burning down on the table, there were wine-glasses, a nearly empty bottle of vodka, bread and cucumber, and glasses with the dregs of stale tea. After gazing attentively at this, Svidrigailov turned away indifferently and sat down on the bed. The ragged attendant, returning with the tea, could not resist asking him again whether he didn't want anything more, 
and again receiving a negative reply, finally withdrew. Svidrigailov made haste to drink a glass of tea to warm himself, but could not eat anything. He began to feel feverish. He took off his coat, and wrapping himself in the blanket lay down on the bed. He was annoyed. "'It would have been better to be well for the occasion,' he thought with a smile. The room was close, the candle burnt dimly, the wind was roaring outside, he heard a mouse scratching in the corner, and the room smelt of mice and of leather. He lay in a sort of reverie. One thought followed another. He felt a longing to fix his imagination on something. It must be a garden under the window, he thought. There's a sound of trees. How I dislike the sound of trees on a stormy night, in the dark! They give one a horrid feeling. He remembered how he had disliked it when he passed Petrovsky Park just now. This reminded him of the bridge over the Little Neva, and he felt cold again as he had when standing there. I never have liked water, he thought, even in a landscape. And he suddenly smiled again at a strange idea. Surely now all these questions of taste and comfort ought not to matter, but I've become more particular, like an animal that picks out a special place, for such an occasion. I ought to have gone into the Petrovsky Park. I suppose it seemed dark, cold, ha <laughs> ha, as though I were seeking pleasant sensations. By the way, why haven't I put out the candle? He blew it out. They've gone to bed next door, he thought, not seeing the light at the crack. Well now, Marfa Petrovna, now is the time for you to turn up. It's dark, and the very time and place for you. But now you won't come." He suddenly recalled how, an hour before carrying out his design on Donia, he had recommended Raskolnikov to trust her to Razumihin's keeping. I suppose I really did say it, as Raskolnikov guessed, to tease myself. But what a rogue that Raskolnikov is! He's gone through a good deal. He may be a successful rogue in time, when he's got over his nonsense, but now he's too eager for life. These young men are contemptible on that point. But hang the fellow! Let him please himself, it's nothing to do with me." He could not get to sleep. By degrees Donia's image rose before him, and a shudder ran over him. No, I must give up all that now, he thought, rousing himself. I must think of something else. It's queer and funny. I never had a great hatred for anyone, I never particularly desired to avenge myself even, and that's a bad sign, a bad sign, a bad sign. I never liked quarreling either, and never lost my temper, that's a bad sign too. And the promises I made her just now too. Damnation! But who knows? Perhaps she would have made a new man of me somehow." He ground his teeth and sank into silence again. Again Donia's image rose before him, just as she was when, after shooting the first time, she had lowered the revolver in terror and gazed blankly at him, so that he might have seized her twice over and she would not have lifted a hand to defend herself if he had not reminded her. He recalled how, at that instant, he felt almost sorry for her how he had felt a pang at his heart. I, Damnation! These thoughts again! I must put it away!" 
He was dozing off. The feverish shiver had ceased, when suddenly something seemed to run over his arm and leg under the bedclothes. He started. Ugh! Hang it! I believe it's a mouse, he thought. That's the veal I left on the table. He felt fearfully disinclined to pull off the blanket, get up, get cold, but all at once something unpleasant ran over his leg again. He pulled off the blanket and lighted the candle. Shaking with feverish chill, he bent down to examine the bed. There was nothing. He shook the blanket, and suddenly a mouse jumped out on the sheet. He tried to catch it, but the mouse ran to and fro in zigzags without leaving the bed, slipped between his fingers, ran over his hand, and suddenly darted under the pillow. He threw down the pillow, but in one instant felt something leap on his chest and dart over his body and down his back under his shirt. He trembled nervously and woke up. The room was dark. He was lying on the bed and wrapped up in the blanket as before. The wind was howling under the window. How disgusting! he thought with annoyance. He got up and sat on the edge of the bedstead with his back to the window. It's better not to sleep at all, he decided. There was a cold, damp draft from the window, however. Without getting up, he drew the blanket over him and wrapped himself in it. He was not thinking of anything and did not want to think. But one image rose after another. Incoherent scraps of thought without beginning or end passed through his mind. He sank into drowsiness. Perhaps the cold, or the dampness, or the dark, or the wind that howled under the window and tossed the trees roused a sort of persistent craving for the fantastic. He kept dwelling on images of flowers. He fancied a charming flower-garden, a bright, warm, almost hot day, a holiday, Trinity Day. A fine, sumptuous country cottage in the English taste overgrown with fragrant flowers, with flower-beds going round the house. The porch, wreathed in climbers, was surrounded with beds of roses. A light, cool staircase, carpeted with rich rugs, was decorated with rare plants in china pots. He noticed particularly in the windows nosegays of tender, white, heavily fragrant narcissus bending over their bright, green, thick, long stalks. He was reluctant to move away from them, but he went up the stairs and came into a large, high drawing-room and again everywhere, at the windows, the doors on the balcony, and on the balcony itself, were flowers. The floors were strewn with freshly cut fragrant hay. The windows were open. A fresh, cool, light air came into the room. The birds were chirruping under the window, and in the middle of the room, on a table covered with a white satin shroud, stood a coffin. The coffin was covered with white silk and edged with a thick white frill. Wreaths of flowers surrounded it on all sides. Among the flowers lay a girl in a white muslin dress, with her arms crossed and pressed on her bosom, as though carved out of marble. But her loose fair hair was wet. There was a wreath of roses on her head. The stern and already rigid profile of her face looked as though chiseled of marble too and the smile on her pale lips was full of an immense unchildish misery and sorrowful appeal. Zvidrigailov knew that girl. There was no holy image, no burning candle beside the coffin, no sound of prayers. The girl had drowned herself. She was only fourteen, but her heart was broken. And she had destroyed herself, 
crushed by an insult that had appalled and amazed that childish soul, had smirched that angel purity with unmerited disgrace, and torn from her a last scream of despair, unheeded and brutally disregarded, on a dark night in the cold and wet while the wind howled. Svidrigailov came to himself, got up from the bed and went to the window. He felt for the latch and opened it. The wind lashed furiously into the little room and stung his face and chest, only covered with his shirt, as though with frost. Under the window there must have been something like a garden, and apparently a pleasure garden. There, too, probably, there were tea-tables and singing in the daytime. Now drops of rain flew in at the window from the trees and bushes. It was dark as in a cellar, so that he could only just make out the dark blurs of objects. Svidrigailov, bending down with elbows on the window-sill, gazed for five minutes into the darkness. The boom of a cannon, followed by a second one, resounded in the darkness of the night. Ah, the signal! The river is overflowing, he thought. By morning it will be swirling down the street in the lower parts, flooding the basements and cellars. The cellar rats will swim out, and men will curse in the rain and wind as they drag their rubbish to the upper stories. What time is it now?" And he had hardly thought it when, somewhere near, a clock on the wall, ticking away hurriedly, struck three. Aha! It will be light in an hour. Why wait? I'll go out at once straight to the park. I'll choose a great bush there drenched with rain, so that as soon as one's shoulder touches it millions of drops drip on one's head." He moved away from the window, shut it, lighted the candle, put on his waistcoat, his overcoat and his hat and went out, carrying the candle, into the passage to look for the ragged attendant, who would be asleep somewhere in the midst of candle-ends and all sorts of rubbish, to pay him for the room and leave the hotel. It's the best minute. I couldn't choose a better. He walked for some time through a long, narrow corridor without finding anyone, and was just going to call out, when suddenly in a dark corner between an old cupboard and the door he caught sight of a strange object which seemed to be alive. He bent down with the candle and saw a little girl, not more than five years old, shivering and crying, with her clothes as wet as a soaking-house flannel. She did not seem afraid of Svidrigailov but looked at him with blank amazement out of her big black eyes. Now and then she sobbed as children do when they have been crying a long time, but are beginning to be comforted. The child's face was pale and tired. She was numb with cold. How can she have come here? She must have hidden here and not slept all night. He began questioning her. The child suddenly became animated clattered away in her baby language, something about Mammy and that Mammy would beat her, and about some cup she had woken. The child chattered on without stopping. He could only guess from what she said that she was a neglected child, whose mother, probably a drunken cook, in the service of the hotel, whipped and frightened her, that the child had broken a cup of her mother's and was so frightened that she had run away the evening before, had hidden for a long while somewhere outside in the rain, at last had made her way in here, hidden behind the cupboard, and spent the night there, crying and trembling from the damp, the darkness and the fear that she would be badly beaten for it. He took her in his arms, went back to his room, sat her on the bed, and began undressing her. 
the torn shoes which she had on her stockingless feet were as wet as if she had been standing in a puddle all night. When he had undressed her, he put her on the bed, covered her up and wrapped her in the blanket from her head downwards. She fell asleep at once. Then he sank into dreary musing again. What folly to trouble myself! he decided suddenly with an oppressive feeling of annoyance. What idiocy! In vexation he took up the candle to go and look for the ragged attendant again and make haste to go away. Damn the child! he thought as he opened the door, but he turned again to see whether the child was asleep. He raised the blanket carefully. The child was sleeping soundly, she had got warm under the blanket, and her pale cheeks were flushed. But strange to say that flush seemed brighter and coarser than the rosy cheeks of childhood. Flush of fever, thought Svidrigailov. It was like the flush from drinking, as though she had been given a full glass to drink. Her crimson lips were hot and glowing. But what was this? He suddenly fancied that her long black eyelashes were quivering, as though the lids were opening and a sly, crafty eye peeped out with an unchildlike wink, as though the little girl were not asleep but pretending. Yes, it was so. Her lips parted in a smile. The corners of her mouth quivered, as though she were trying to control them. But now she quite gave up all effort. Now it was a grin, a broad grin. There was something shameless, provocative in that quite unchildish face. It was depravity. It was the face of a harlot, the shameless face of a French harlot. Now both eyes opened wide. They turned a glowing, shameless glance upon him. They laughed, invited him. There was something infinitely hideous and shocking in that laugh, in those eyes, in such nastiness in the face of a child. What? At five years old? Svidrigailov muttered in genuine horror. What does it mean? And now she turned to him, her little face all aglow, holding out her arms. Accursed child! Svidrigailov cried, raising his hand to strike her. But at that moment he woke up. He was in the same bed, still wrapped in the blanket. The candle had not been lighted, and daylight was streaming in at the windows. I've had nightmare all night." He got up angrily, feeling utterly shattered. His bones ached. There was a thick mist outside and he could see nothing. It was nearly five. He had overslept himself. He got up, put on his still damp jacket and overcoat. Feeling the revolver in his pocket, he took it out and then he sat down, took a notebook out of his pocket and in the most conspicuous place on the title page wrote a few lines in large letters. Reading them over, he sank into thought with his elbows on the table. The revolver and the notebook lay beside him. Some flies woke up and settled on the untouched veal, which was still on the table. He stared at them, and at last with his free right hand began trying to catch one. He tried till he was tired, but could not catch it. At last, realizing that he was engaged in this interesting pursuit, he started, got up, and walked resolutely out of the room. A minute later he was in the street. A thick milky mist hung over the town. Svidrigailov walked along the slippery, dirty wooden pavement towards the Little Neva. He was picturing the waters of the Little Neva swollen in the night, Petrovsky Island, the wet paths, 
the wet grass, the wet trees and bushes, and at last the bush. He began ill-humouredly staring at the houses, trying to think of something else. There was not a cabman or a passer-by in the street. The bright yellow, wooden little houses looked dirty and dejected with their closed shutters. The cold and damp penetrated his whole body, and he began to shiver. From time to time he came across shop signs and read each carefully. At last he reached the end of the wooden pavement and came to a big stone house. A dirty, shivering dog crossed his path with its tail between its legs. A man in a greatcoat lay face downwards, dead drunk across the pavement. He looked at him and went on. A high tower stood up on the left. Bah! he shouted. Here is a place. Why should it be Petrovsky? It will be in the presence of an official witness, anyway. He almost smiled at this new thought and turned into the street where there was the big house with the tower. At the great closed gates of the house a little man stood with his shoulder leaning against them, wrapped in a grey soldier's coat, with a copper Achilles helmet on his head. He cast a drowsy and indifferent glance at Svidrigailov. His face wore that perpetual look of peevish dejection, which is so sourly printed on all the faces of Jewish race without exception. They both, Svidrigailov and Achilles, stared at each other for a few minutes without speaking. At last it struck Achilles as irregular for a man not drunk to be standing three steps from him, staring and not saying a word. "'What do you want here?' he said, without moving or changing his position. "'Nothing, brother. Good morning,' answered Svidrigailov. "'This isn't the place.' "'I am going to foreign parts, brother.' to foreign parts? To America. America. Svidrigailov took out the revolver and cocked it. Achilles raised his eyebrows. I say, this is not the place for such jokes. Why shouldn't it be the place? Because it isn't. Well, brother, I don't mind that. It's a good place. When you are asked, you just say he was going, he said, to America. He put the revolver to his right temple. "'You can't do it here! It's not the place!' cried Achilles, rousing himself, his eyes growing bigger and bigger. Zvidrigailov pulled the trigger. End of Part 6 Chapter 6Translated by Constance Garnett, 1861 to 1946. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Six, Chapter Seven. The same day, about seven o'clock in the evening, Raskolnikov was on his way to his mother's and sister's lodging, the lodging at Bakaliev's house, which Razumihin had found for them. The stairs went up from the street. Raskolnikov walked with lagging steps as though still hesitating whether to go or not. But nothing would have turned him back. His decision was taken. Besides, it doesn't matter. They still know nothing, he thought. And they are used to thinking of me as eccentric. He was appallingly dressed, his clothes torn and dirty, soaked with the night's rain. His face was almost distorted from fatigue, exposure, the inward conflict that had lasted for twenty-four hours. 
He had spent all the previous night alone, God knows where. But anyway, he had reached a decision. He knocked at the door which was opened by his mother. Donia was not at home. Even the servant happened to be out. At first Polcheria Alexandrovna was speechless with joy and surprise. Then she took him by the hand and drew him into the room. "'Here you are,' she began, faltering with joy. "'Don't be angry with me, Rodya, for welcoming you so foolishly with tears. I am laughing, not crying. Did you think I was crying? No, I am delighted, but I've got into such a stupid habit of shedding tears. I've been like that ever since your father's death. I cry for anything. Sit down, dear boy, you must be tired. I see you are. Oh, how muddy you are!' I was in the rain yesterday, mother," Raskolnikov began. No, no, Polcheria Alexandrovna hurriedly interrupted. You thought I was going to cross-question you in the womanish way I used to. Don't be anxious. I understand. I understand it all. Now I've learned the ways here, and truly I see for myself that they are better. I've made up my mind once for all. How could I understand your plans and expect you to give an account of them? God knows what concerns and plans you may have, or what ideas you are hatching, so it's not for me to keep nudging your elbow, asking you what you are thinking about. But, my goodness, why am I running to and fro as though I were crazy? I am reading your article in the magazine for the third time, Rodya. Dmitri Prokovich brought it to me. Directly I saw it, I cried out to myself. There, foolish one, I thought, that's what he is busy about. That's the solution of the mystery. Learned people are always like that. He may have some new ideas in his head just now. He is thinking them over, and I worry him and upset him. I read it, my dear, and of course there was a great deal I did not understand, but that's only natural. How should I?" "'Show me, mother.' Raskolnikov took the magazine and glanced at his article. Incongruous as it was with his mood and his circumstances, he felt that strange and bittersweet sensation that every author experiences the first time he sees himself in print. Besides, he was only twenty-three. It lasted only a moment. After reading a few lines he frowned and his heart throbbed with anguish. He recalled all the inward conflict of the preceding months. He flung the article on the table with disgust and anger. But, however foolish I may be, Rodya, I can see for myself that you will very soon be one of the leading, if not the leading man, in the world of Russian thought. And they dared to think you were mad. You don't know, but they really thought that. Ah, the despicable creatures! How could they understand genius? And Donia, Donia was all but believing it. What do you say to that? Your father sent twice to magazines, the first time poems. I've got the manuscript and will show you and the second time a whole novel. I begged him to let me copy it out, and how we prayed that they should be taken. They weren't. I was breaking my heart, Rodya, six or seven days ago, over your food and your clothes and the way you were living. But now I see again how foolish I was, for you can attain any position you like by your intellect and talent. No doubt you don't care about that for the present, and you are occupied with much more important matters. Donia's not at home, mother. No, Rodya, I often don't see her. She leaves me alone. Dmitri Prokovich comes to see me. 
It's so good of him, and he always talks about you. He loves you and respects you, my dear. I don't say that Donia is very wanting in consideration. I am not complaining. She has her ways, and I have mine. She seems to have got some secrets of late, and I never have any secrets from you two. Of course, I am sure that Donia has far too much sense, and besides, she loves you and me. But I don't know what it will all lead to. You've made me so happy by coming now, Rodya, but she has missed you by going out. When she comes in, I'll tell her. Your brother came in while you were out. Where have you been all this time? You mustn't spoil me, Rodya, you know. Come when you can, but if you can't, it doesn't matter. I can wait. I shall know, anyway, that you are fond of me. That will be enough for me. I shall read what you write, I shall hear about you from everyone, and sometimes you'll come yourself to see me. What could be better? Here you've come now to comfort your mother, I see that." Here Polcheria Alexandrovna began to cry. "'Here I am again. Don't mind my foolishness. My goodness, why am I sitting here?' she cried, jumping up. "'There is coffee, and I don't offer you any. Ah, that's the selfishness of old age. I'll get it at once.' "'Mother, don't trouble. I am going at once. I haven't come for that. Please listen to me.' Polcheria Alexandrovna went up to him timidly. "'Mother, whatever happens, whatever you hear about me, whatever you are told about me, you will always love me as you do now?' he asked suddenly from the fullness of his heart, as though not thinking of his words and not weighing them. "'Rodya, Rodya, what is the matter? How can you ask me such a question? Why, who will tell me anything about you? Besides, I shouldn't believe anyone, I should refuse to listen. I've come to assure you that I've always loved you, and am glad that we are alone, even glad Donia is out," he went on with the same impulse. I have come to tell you that, though you will be unhappy, you must believe that your son loves you now more than himself and that all you thought about me, that I was cruel and didn't care about you, was all a mistake. I shall never cease to love you. Well, that's enough. I thought I must do this and begin with this." Pulcheria Alexandrovna embraced him in silence, pressing him to her bosom and weeping gently. "'I don't know what is wrong with you, Rodya,' she said at last. "'I've been thinking all this time that we were simply boring you and now I see that there is a great sorrow in store for you, and that's why you are miserable. I've foreseen it a long time, Rodya. Forgive me for speaking about it. I keep thinking about it and lie awake at nights. Your sister lay talking in her sleep all last night, talking of nothing but you. I caught something, but I couldn't make it out. I felt all the morning as though I were going to be hanged, waiting for something, expecting something and now it has come. Rodya, Rodya, where are you going? You are going away somewhere?" Yes. That's what I thought. I can come with you, you know, if you need me, and Donya too. She loves you, she loves you dearly, and Sofia Semyonovna may come with us if you like. You see, I am glad to look upon her as a daughter even. Dmitri Prokovitch will help us to go together. But where are you going? Goodbye, mother. What? Today? she cried, as though losing him forever. I can't stay. I must go now. 
and can't I come with you?' "'No, but kneel down and pray to God for me. Your prayer perhaps will reach him.' "'Let me bless you and sign you with the cross. That's right, that's right. Oh, God, what are we doing?' Yes, he was glad, he was very glad that there was no one there, that he was alone with his mother. For the first time after all those awful months his heart was softened. He fell down before her, he kissed her feet, and both wept, embracing. And she was not surprised and did not question him this time. For some days she had realized that something awful was happening to her son, and that now some terrible minute had come for him. Rodia, my darling, my firstborn, she said, sobbing. Now you are just as when you were little. You would run like this to me and hug me and kiss me. When your father was living and we were poor, you comforted us simply by being with us, and when I buried your father, how often we wept together at his grave and embraced, as now. And if I've been crying lately, it's that my mother's heart had a foreboding of trouble. The first time I saw you, that evening, you remember, as soon as we arrived here, I guessed simply from your eyes. My heart sank at once, and today, when I opened the door and looked at you, I thought the fatal hour had come. Rodya, Rodya, you are not going away today? No. You'll come again? Yes, I'll come. Rodya, don't be angry. I don't dare to question you. I know I mustn't. Only say two words to me. Is it far where you are going?" Very far. What is awaiting you there? Some post or career for you? What God sends. Only pray for me. Raskolnikov went to the door, but she clutched him and gazed despairingly into his eyes. Her face worked with terror. Enough, mother, said Raskolnikov, deeply regretting that he had come. Not forever, is it not forever? You'll come, you'll come tomorrow? I will, I will, good-bye. He tore himself away at last. It was a warm, fresh, bright evening. It had cleared up in the morning. Raskolnikov went to his lodgings. He made haste. He wanted to finish all before sunset. He did not want to meet anyone till then. Going up the stairs, he noticed that Nastasha rushed from the samovar to watch him intently. "'Can anyone have come to see me?' he wondered. He had a disgusted vision of Porfiry. But opening his door, he saw Donya. She was sitting alone, plunged in deep thought, and looked as though she had been waiting a long time. He stopped short in the doorway. She rose from the sofa in dismay and stood up facing him. Her eyes, fixed upon him, betrayed horror and infinite grief. And from those eyes alone he saw at once that she knew. "'Am I to come in or go away?' he asked uncertainly. "'I've been all day with Sofia Semyonovna. We were both waiting for you. We thought that you would be sure to come there.' Raskolnikov went into the room and sank exhausted on a chair. I feel weak, Donya. I am very tired, and I should have liked at this moment to be able to control myself." He glanced at her mistrustfully. "'Where were you all night?' "'I don't remember clearly. You see, sister, I wanted to make up my mind once for all, 
and several times I walked by the Neva. I remember that I wanted to end it all there, but I couldn't make up my mind," he whispered, looking at her mistrustfully again. "'Thank God! That was just what we were afraid of, Sofia Semyonovna and I. Then you still have faith in life? Thank God! Thank God!' Raskolnikov smiled bitterly. "'I haven't faith, but I have just been weeping in mother's arms. I haven't faith, but I have just asked her to pray for me. I don't know how it is, Donia. I don't understand it.' "'Have you been at mother's? Have you told her?' cried Donia, horror-stricken. "'Surely you haven't done that.' "'No, I didn't tell her. In words. But she understood a great deal. She heard you talking in your sleep. I am sure she half understands it already. Perhaps I did wrong in going to see her. I don't know why I did go. I am a contemptible person, Donia." "'A contemptible person, but ready to face suffering. You are, aren't you?' "'Yes, I am going. At once. Yes, to escape the disgrace, I thought of drowning myself, Donia. But as I looked into the water, I thought that if I had considered myself strong till now, I'd better not be afraid of disgrace," he said, hurrying on. "'It's pride, Donia. Pride, Rodya. There was a gleam of fire in his lusterless eyes. He seemed to be glad to think that he was still proud. "'You don't think, sister, that I was simply afraid of the water?' he asked, looking into her face with a sinister smile. "'Oh, Rodya, hush!' cried Donia bitterly. Silence lasted for two minutes. He sat with his eyes fixed on the floor. Donia stood at the other end of the table and looked at him with anguish. Suddenly he got up. "'It's late. It's time to go. I am going at once to give myself up. But I don't know why I am going to give myself up.' Big tears fell from her cheeks. "'You are crying, sister. But can you hold out your hand to me?' "'You doubted it?' She threw her arms round him. "'Aren't you half expiating your crime by facing the suffering?' she cried, holding him close and kissing him. "'Crime? What crime?' he cried in sudden fury. "'That I killed a vile, noxious insect? An old pawnbroker woman, of use to no one? Killing her was an atonement for forty sins. She was sucking the life out of poor people. Was that a crime?' I am not thinking of it, and I am not thinking of expiating it. And why are you all rubbing it in on all sides? A crime! A crime! Only now I see clear the imbecility of my cowardice, now that I have decided to face this superfluous disgrace. It's simply because I am contemptible and have nothing in me that I have decided to, perhaps, too, for my advantage, as that, Porfiry, suggested. Brother. "'Brother, what are you saying? Why, you have shed blood?' cried Donia in despair. "'Which all men shed,' he put in almost frantically, "'which flows and has always flowed in streams, which is spilt like champagne, and for which men are crowned in the capital and are called afterwards benefactors of mankind. Look into it more carefully and understand it.' I, too, wanted to do good to men, and would have done hundreds, 
thousands of good deeds to make up for that one piece of stupidity. Not stupidity even, simply clumsiness, for the idea was by no means stupid as it seems now that it has failed. Everything seems stupid when it fails. By that stupidity I only wanted to put myself into an independent position, to take the first step, to obtain means, and then everything would have been smoothed over by benefits immeasurable in comparison. But I, I couldn't carry out even the first step, because I am contemptible, that's what's the matter. And yet I won't look at it as you do. If I had succeeded, I should have been crowned with glory, but now I'm trapped. But that's not so, not so. Brother, what are you saying? Ah, it's not picturesque, not aesthetically attractive. I fail to understand why bombarding people by regular siege is more honorable. The fear of appearances is the first symptom of impotence. I've never, never recognized this more clearly than now, and I am further than ever from seeing that what I did was a crime. I've never, never been stronger and more convinced than now." The color had rushed into his pale, exhausted face, but as he uttered this last explanation he happened to meet Donia's eyes, and he saw such anguish in them that he could not help being checked. He felt that he had, anyway, made these two poor women miserable, that he was, anyway, the cause. Donia, darling, if I am guilty, forgive me though I cannot be forgiven if I am guilty. Good-bye. We won't dispute. It's time, high time to go. Don't follow me, I beseech you. I have somewhere else to go. But you go at once and sit with mother. I entreat you to. It's my last request of you. Don't leave her at all. I left her in a state of anxiety, that she is not fit to bear. She will die or go out of her mind. Be with her. Resumian will be with you. I've been talking to him. Don't cry about me. I'll try to be honest and manly all my life, even if I am a murderer. Perhaps I shall some day make a name. I won't disgrace you, you will see. I'll still show—now good-bye for the present," he concluded hurriedly, noticing again a strange expression in Donia's eyes at his last words and promises. Why are you crying? Don't cry, don't cry. We are not parting forever. Ah, yes, wait a minute, I'd forgotten. He went to the table, took up a thick dusty book, opened it, and took from between the pages a little watercolor portrait on ivory. It was the portrait of his landlady's daughter who had died of fever, that strange girl who had wanted to be a nun. For a minute he gazed at the delicate, expressive face of his betrothed kissed the portrait and gave it to Donia. "'I used to talk a great deal about it to her, only to her,' he said thoughtfully. "'To her heart I confided much of what has since been so hideously realized. "'Don't be uneasy,' he returned to Donia. "'She was as much opposed to it as you, and I am glad that she is gone. "'The great point is that everything now is going to be different, is going to be broken in two he cried, suddenly returning to his dejection. Everything, everything! And am I prepared for it? Do I want it myself? They say it is necessary for me to suffer. What's the object of these senseless sufferings? 
Shall I know any better what they are for when I am crushed by hardships and idiocy and weak as an old man after twenty years' penal servitude? And what shall I have to live for then? Why am I consenting to that life now? Oh, I knew I was contemptible when I stood looking at the Neva at daybreak today. At last they both went out. It was hard for Donia, but she loved him. She walked away, but after going fifty paces she turned round to look at him again. He was still in sight. At the corner he too turned and for the last time their eyes met, but noticing that she was looking at him he motioned her away with impatience and even vexation and turned the corner abruptly. "'I am wicked, I see that,' he thought to himself, feeling ashamed a moment later of his angry gesture to Donia. But why are they so fond of me if I don't deserve it? Oh, if only I were alone, and no one loved me, and I too had never loved anyone! Nothing of all this would have happened! But I wonder shall I, in those fifteen or twenty years, grow so meek that I shall humble myself before people and whimper at every word that I am a criminal? Yes, that's it, that's it, that's what they are sending me there for, that's what they want. Look at them running to and fro about the streets, every one of them a scoundrel and a criminal at heart, and worse still, an idiot. But try to get me off, and they be wild with righteous indignation. Oh, how I hate them all!" He fell to musing by what process it would come to pass, that he could be humble before all of them, indiscriminately humbled by conviction. And yet, why not? It must be so. Would not twenty years of continual bondage crush him utterly? Water wears out a stone. And why, why should he live after that? Why should he go now when he knew that it would be so? It was the hundredth time, perhaps, that he had asked himself that question since the previous evening. But still he went. End of Part 6 Chapter 7《Part Six, Chapter Eight of Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky, translated by Constance Garnett, 1861 to 1946. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Six, Chapter Eight. When he went into Sonia's room, it was already getting dark. All day Sonia had been waiting for him in terrible anxiety. Donia had been waiting with her. She had come to her that morning, remembering Svidrigailov's words that Sonia knew. We will not describe the conversation and tears of the two girls, and how friendly they became. Donia gained one comfort at least from that interview, that her brother would not be alone. He had gone to her, Sonia, first with his confession. He had gone to her for human fellowship when he needed it. She would go with him wherever fate might send him. Donia did not ask, but she knew it was so. She looked at Sonia almost with reverence, and at first almost embarrassed her by it. Sonia was almost on the point of tears. She felt herself, on the contrary, hardly worthy to look at Donia. Donia's gracious image, when she had bowed to her so attentively and respectfully at their first meeting in Raskolnikov's room, had remained in her mind as one of the fairest visions of her life. Donia at last became impatient, and, leaving Sonia, went to her brother's room to await him there. 
She kept thinking that he would come there first. When she had gone, Sonia began to be tortured by the dread of his committing suicide, and Donia too feared it. But they had spent the day trying to persuade each other that that could not be, and both were less anxious while they were together. As soon as they parted, each thought of nothing else. Sonia remembered how Svidrigailov had said to her the day before that Raskolnikov had two alternatives, Siberia or... Besides, she knew his vanity, his pride, and his lack of faith. "'Is it possible that he has nothing but cowardice and fear of death to make him live?' she thought at last in despair. Meanwhile the sun was setting. Sonia was standing in dejection, looking intently out of the window, but from it she could see nothing but the unwhitewashed blank wall of the next house. At last, when she began to feel sure of his death, he walked into the room. She gave a cry of joy, but looking carefully into his face she turned pale. "'Yes,' said Raskolnikov, smiling. "'I have come for your cross, Sonia. It was you told me to go to the crossroads. Why is it you are frightened now it's come to that?' Sonia gazed at him astonished. His tone seemed strange to her. A cold shiver ran over her, but in a moment she guessed that the tone and the words were a mask. He spoke to her looking away, as though to avoid meeting her eyes. "'You see, Sonia, I've decided that it would be better so. There is one fact, but it's a long story and there's no need to discuss it. But do you know what angers me? It annoys me that all these stupid, brutish faces will be gaping at me directly pestering me with their stupid questions, which I shall have to answer. They'll point their fingers at me. Foo! You know, I am not going to Porfiry. I am sick of him. I'd rather go to my friend, the explosive lieutenant. How I shall surprise him! What a sensation I shall make! But I must be cooler. I've become too irritable of late. You know, I was nearly shaking my fist at my sister just now because she turned to take a last look at me. It's a brutal state to be in. Ah, what am I coming to? Well, where are the crosses?" He seemed hardly to know what he was doing. He could not stay still or concentrate his attention on anything. His ideas seemed to gallop after one another, he talked incoherently, his hands trembled slightly. Without a word Sonya took out of the drawer two crosses one of cypress wood and one of copper. She made the sign of the cross over herself and over him, and put the wooden cross on his neck. "'It's the symbol of my taking up the cross,' he laughed. "'As though I had not suffered much till now. The wooden cross, that is the peasant one. The copper one, that is Lizaveta's. You will wear yourself. Show me.' So she had it on, at that moment? I remember two things like these, too, a silver one and a little icon. I threw them back on the old woman's neck. Those would be appropriate now, really, those are what I ought to put on now. But I am talking nonsense and forgetting what matters. I am somehow forgetful. You see, I have come to warn you, Sonia, so that you might know. That's all, that's all I came for. But I thought I had more to say. You wanted me to go yourself. Well, now I am going to prison, and you'll have your wish. 
Well, what are you crying for? You too? Don't. Leave off. Oh, how I hate it all!" But his feeling was stirred, his heart ached as he looked at her. Why is she grieving too? he thought to himself. What am I to her? Why does she weep? Why is she looking after me, like my mother or Donia? She'll be my nurse. Cross yourself, say at least one prayer, Sonia begged in a timid, broken voice. Oh, certainly, as much as you like. And sincerely, Sonia, sincerely. But he wanted to say something quite different. He crossed himself several times. Sonia took up her shawl and put it over her head. It was the green, dropped-a-dom shawl of which Marmeladov had spoken, the family shawl. Raskolnikov thought of that looking at it, but he did not ask. He began to feel himself that he was certainly forgetting things and was disgustingly agitated. He was frightened at this. He was suddenly struck, too, by the thought that Sonia meant to go with him. "'What are you doing? Where are you going? Stay here, stay! I'll go alone!' he cried in cowardly vexation, and almost resentful, he moved towards the door. "'What's the use of going in procession?' he muttered going out. Sonia remained standing in the middle of the room. He had not even said good-bye to her. He had forgotten her. A poignant and rebellious doubt surged in his heart. "'Was it right? Was it right, all this?' he thought again as he went down the stairs. "'Couldn't he stop and retract it all and not go?' But still he went. He felt suddenly once for all that he mustn't ask himself questions. As he turned into the street, he remembered that he had not said good-bye to Sonia, that he had left her in the middle of the room in her green shawl, not daring to stir after he had shouted at her, and he stopped short for a moment. At the same instant another thought dawned upon him, as though it had been lying in wait to strike him then. Why, with what object did I go to her just now? I told her, on business. On what business? I had no sort of business. To tell her I was going. But where was the need? Do I love her? No, no, I drove her away just now like a dog. Did I want her crosses? Oh, how low I've sunk! No, I wanted her tears. I wanted to see her terror, to see how her heart ached. I had to have something to cling to, something to delay me, some friendly face to see and I dared to believe in myself, to dream of what I would do. I am a beggarly, contemptible wretch, contemptible!" He walked along the canal bank, and he had not much further to go. But on reaching the bridge, he stopped and turning out of his way along it, went to the haymarket. He looked eagerly to right and left, gazed intently at every object, and could not fix his attention on anything. Everything slipped away. In another week, another month, I shall be driven in a prison van over this bridge. How shall I look at the canal then? I should like to remember this," slipped into his mind. Look at that sign. How shall I read those letters then? It's written here, Campany. That's a thing to remember, that letter A, and to look at it again in a month. How shall I look at it then? What shall I be feeling and thinking then? 
how trivial it all must be, what I am fretting about now. Of course it must all be interesting, in its way. Ha, ha, ha! What am I thinking about? I am becoming a baby, I am showing off to myself. Why am I ashamed? Foo! How people shove! That fat man, a German he must be, who pushed against me, does he know whom he pushed? There's a peasant woman with a baby, begging. It's curious that she thinks me happier than she is. I might give her something, for the incongruity of it. Here's a five-kopeck piece left in my pocket. Where did I get it? Here, here! Take it, my good woman!" "'God bless you!' the beggar chanted in a lachrymose voice. He went into the haymarket. It was distasteful, very distasteful to be in a crowd, but he walked just where he saw most people. He would have given anything in the world to be alone, but he knew himself that he would not have remained alone for a moment. There was a man drunk and disorderly in the crowd. He kept trying to dance and falling down. There was a ring round him. Raskolnikov squeezed his way through the crowd, stared for some minutes at the drunken man and suddenly gave a short jerky laugh. A minute later he had forgotten him and did not see him, though he still stared. He moved away at last, not remembering where he was. But when he got into the middle of the square an emotion suddenly came over him, overwhelming him body and mind. He suddenly recalled Sonya's words. "'Go to the crossroads, bow down to the people, kiss the earth, for you have sinned against it too, and say aloud to the whole world, I am a murderer." He trembled, remembering that. And the hopeless misery and anxiety of all that time, especially of the last hours, had weighed so heavily upon him that he positively clutched at the chance of this new unmixed, complete sensation. It came over him like a fit. It was like a single spark kindled in his soul and spreading fire through him. Everything in him softened at once, and the tears started into his eyes. He fell to the earth on the spot. He knelt down in the middle of the square, bowed down to the earth, and kissed that filthy earth with bliss and rapture. He got up, bowed down a second time. "'He's boozed!' a youth near him observed. There was a roar of laughter. "'He's going to Jerusalem, brothers, and saying good-bye to his children and his country. He's bowing down to all the world and kissing the great city of St. Petersburg and its pavement,' added a workman who was a little drunk. "'Quite a young man, too,' observed a third. "'And a gentleman,' someone observed soberly. "'There's no knowing who's a gentleman and who isn't nowadays.' These exclamations and remarks checked Raskolnikov, and the words, I am a murderer, which were perhaps on the point of dropping from his lips, died away. He bore these remarks quietly, however, and without looking round he turned down a street leading to the police office. He had a glimpse of something on the way which did not surprise him. He had felt that it must be so. The second time he bowed down in the haymarket, he saw, standing fifty paces from him on the left, Sonia. She was hiding from him behind one of the wooden shanties in the marketplace. She had followed him then on his painful way. Raskolnikov at that moment felt and knew once for all that Sonia was with him forever, and would follow him to the ends of the earth, 
wherever fate might take him. It wrung his heart, but he was just reaching the fatal place. He went into the yard fairly resolutely. He had to mount to the third story. I shall be some time going up, he thought. He felt as though the fateful moment was still far off, as though he had plenty of time left for consideration. Again the same rubbish, the same eggshells lying about on the spiral stairs, again the open doors of the flats, again the same kitchens and the same fumes and stench coming from them. Raskolnikov had not been there since that day. His legs were numb and gave way under him, but still they moved forward. He stopped for a moment to take breath, to collect himself, so as to enter like a man. But why? What for? he wondered, reflecting. If I must drink the cup, what difference does it make? The more revolting the better. He imagined for an instant the figure of the explosive lieutenant, Ilya Petrovitch. Was he actually going to him? Couldn't he go to someone else, to Nikodim Fomitch? Couldn't he turn back and go straight to Nikodim Fomitch's lodgings? At least then it would be done privately. No, no, to the explosive lieutenant. If he must drink it, drink it off at once. Turning cold and hardly conscious, he opened the door of the office. There were very few people in it this time, only a house-porter and a peasant. The doorkeeper did not even peep out from behind his screen. Raskolnikov walked into the next room. Perhaps I still need not speak, passed through his mind. Some sort of clerk not wearing a uniform was settling himself at a bureau to write. In a corner another clerk was seating himself. Zamatov was not there, nor, of course, Nikodim Fomitch. No one in? Raskolnikov asked, addressing the person at the bureau. Whom do you want? Ah! Not a sound was heard, not a sight was seen, but I sent the Russian. How does it go on in the fairy tale? I've forgotten. At your service! A familiar voice cried suddenly. Raskolnikov shuddered. The explosive lieutenant stood before him. He had just come in from the third room. It is the hand of fate, thought Raskolnikov. Why is he here? You've come to see us? What about? cried Ilya Petrovitch. He was obviously in an exceedingly good humor and perhaps a trifle exhilarated. If it's on business, you are rather early. It's only chance that I am here. However, I'll do what I can. I must admit I—' "'What is it? What is it? Excuse me.' "'Raskolnikov. Of course, Raskolnikov. You didn't imagine I'd forgotten. Don't think I am like that Rodion—Ro—Ro—Rodionovich? That's it, isn't it?' "'Rodion Romanovich.' "'Yes, yes, of course. Rodion Romanovich.' "'I was just getting at it. I made many inquiries about you.' I assure you, I've been genuinely grieved since that—since I behaved like that. It was explained to me afterwards that you were a literary man, and a learned one, too, and so to say the first steps. Mercy on us! What literary or scientific man does not begin by some originality of conduct? My wife and I have the greatest respect for literature. In my wife it's a genuine passion. Literature and art! If only a man is a gentleman, all the rest can be gained by talents, learning, good sense, genius. As for a hat, well, what does a hat matter? 
I can buy a hat as easily as I can a bun. But what's under the hat, what the hat covers, I can't buy that. I was even meaning to come and apologize to you, but thought maybe you'd... But I am forgetting to ask you, is there anything you want, really? I hear your family have come." Yes, my mother and sister. I've even had the honor and happiness of meeting your sister, a highly cultivated and charming person. I confess I was sorry I got so hot with you. There it is. But as for my looking suspiciously at your fainting fit, that affair has been cleared up splendidly. Bigotry and fanaticism. I understand your indignation. Perhaps you are changing your lodging on account of your family's arriving? No, I only looked in. I came to ask. I thought that I should find Zamatov here. Oh, yes, of course, you've made friends, I heard. Well, no, Zamatov is not here. Yes, we've lost Zamatov. He's not been here since yesterday. He quarreled with everyone on leaving, in the rudest way. He is a feather-headed youngster, that's all. One might have expected something from him, but there, you know what they are, our brilliant young men. He wanted to go in for some examination, but it's only to talk and boast about it. It will go no further than that. Of course, it's a very different matter with you or Mr. Razumian there, your friend. Your career is an intellectual one, and you won't be deterred by failure. For you, one may say, all the attractions of life nihil est. You are an ascetic, a monk, a hermit. A book, a pen behind your ear, a learned research, that's where your spirit soars. I am that way myself. Have you read Livingstone's travels? No. Oh, I have. There are a great many nihilists about nowadays, you know, and indeed it is not to be wondered at. What sort of days are they, I ask you? But we thought—you are not a nihilist, of course. Answer me openly, openly. No. Believe me, you can speak openly to me as you would to yourself. Official duty is one thing, but— You are thinking I meant to say friendship is quite another? No, you're wrong. It's not friendship, but the feeling of a man and a citizen, the feeling of humanity, and of love for the Almighty. I may be an official, but I am always bound to feel myself a man and a citizen. You are asking about Zamatov. Zamatov will make a scandal in the French style in a house of bad reputation, over a glass of champagne. That's all your Zamatov is good for. Well, I'm perhaps, so to speak, burning with devotion and lofty feelings, and besides, I have rank, consequence, a post. I am married and have children. I fulfill the duties of a man and a citizen. But who is he, may I ask? I appeal to you as a man ennobled by education. Then these midwives, too, have become extraordinarily numerous." Raskolnikov raised his eyebrows inquiringly. The words of Ilya Petrovitch, who had obviously been dining, were for the most part a stream of empty sounds for him. But some of them he understood. He looked at him inquiringly, not knowing how it would end. "'I mean those crop-headed wenches,' the talkative Ilya Petrovitch continued. "'Midwives is my name for them. I think it a very satisfactory one, ha <laughs> They go to the academy, study anatomy. If I fall ill, am I to send for a young lady to treat me? What do you say, ha <laughs> Ilya Petrovitch laughed, quite pleased with his own wit. 
It's an immoderate zeal for education, but once you're educated, that's enough. Why abuse it? Why insult honorable people, as that scoundrel Zamatov does? Why did he insult me, I ask you? Look at these suicides, too, how common they are, you can't fancy. People spend their last halfpenny and kill themselves, boys and girls and old people. Only this morning we heard about a gentleman who had just come to town. Neil Pavlich, I say, what was the name of that gentleman who shot himself? Svidrigailov, someone answered from the other room with a drowsy listlessness. Raskolnikov started. Svidrigailov? Svidrigailov has shot himself? he cried. What, do you know Svidrigailov? Yes, I knew him. He hadn't been here long. Yes, that's so. He had lost his wife, was a man of reckless habits, and all of a sudden shot himself, and in such a shocking way. He left in his notebook a few words, that he dies in full possession of his faculties and that no one is to blame for his death. He had money, they say. How did you come to know him? I was acquainted. My sister was governess in his family. Bah, bah, bah. Then no doubt you can tell us something about him. You had no suspicion? I saw him yesterday. He was drinking wine. I knew nothing." Raskolnikov felt as though something had fallen on him and was stifling him. "'You've turned pale again. It's so stuffy here.' "'Yes, I must go,' muttered Raskolnikov. "'Excuse my troubling you.' "'Oh, not at all, as often as you like. It's a pleasure to see you, and I am glad to say so.' Ilya Petrovich held out his hand. I only wanted... I came to see Zamatov. I understand, I understand, and it's a pleasure to see you. I... am very glad. Good-bye." Raskolnikov smiled. He went out. He reeled. He was overtaken with giddiness and did not know what he was doing. He began going down the stairs, supporting himself with his right hand against the wall. He fancied that a porter pushed past him on his way upstairs to the police office, that a dog in the lower story kept up a shrill barking and that a woman flung a rolling-pin at it and shouted. He went down and out into the yard. There, not far from the entrance, stood Sonia, pale and horror-stricken. She looked wildly at him. He stood still before her. There was a look of poignant agony, of despair in her face. She clasped her hands. His lips worked in an ugly, meaningless smile. He stood still a minute, grinned, and went back to the police office. Ilya Petrovich had sat down and was rummaging among some papers. Before him stood the same peasant who had pushed by on the stairs. "'Hullo! Back again! Have you left something behind? What's the matter?' Raskolnikov, with white lips and staring eyes, came slowly nearer. He walked right to the table, leaned his hand on it, tried to say something, but could not. Only incoherent sounds were audible. "'You are feeling ill. A chair. Here, sit down. Some water.' Raskolnikov dropped onto a chair, but he kept his eyes fixed on the face of Ilya Petrovich, which expressed unpleasant surprise. Both looked at one another for a minute and waited. Water was brought. It was I," began Raskolnikov. Drink some water. Raskolnikov refused the water with his hand, 
and softly and brokenly but distinctly said, It was I killed the old pawnbroker woman and her sister Lizaveta with an axe and robbed them. Ilya Petrovich opened his mouth. People ran up on all sides. Raskolnikov repeated his statement. End of Part 6, Chapter 8《Epilogue of Crime and Punishment》by Fyodor Dostoevsky, translated by Constance Garnett, 1861-1946. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Epilogue 1. Siberia On the banks of a broad, solitary river stands a town, one of the administrative centers of Russia. In the town there is a fortress. In the fortress there is a prison. In the prison, the second-class convict Rodion Raskolnikov has been confined for nine months. Almost a year and a half has passed since his crime. There had been little difficulty about his trial. The criminal adhered exactly, firmly, and clearly to his statement. He did not confuse nor misrepresent the facts, nor soften them in his own interest, nor omit the smallest detail. He explained every incident of the murder the secret of the pledge, the piece of wood with a strip of metal, which was found in the murdered woman's hand. He described minutely how he had taken her keys, what they were like, as well as the chest and its contents. He explained the mystery of Lizaveta's murder, described how Koch and after him the student knocked, and repeated all they had said to one another. How he had afterwards had run downstairs and heard Nikolai and Dmitri shouting, how he had hidden in the empty flat and afterwards gone home. He ended by indicating the stone in the yard off the Vosnesensky prospect, under which the purse and the trinkets were found. The whole thing, in fact, was perfectly clear. The lawyers and the judges were very much struck, among other things, by the fact that he had hidden the trinkets and the purse under a stone, without making use of them, and that, what was more, he did not now remember what the trinkets were like or even how many there were. The fact that he had never opened the purse and did not even know how much was in it seemed incredible. There turned out to be in the purse three hundred and seventeen roubles and sixty kopecks. From being so long under the stone, some of the most valuable notes lying uppermost had suffered from the damp. They were a long while trying to discover why the accused man should tell a lie about this when about everything else he had made a truthful and straightforward confession. Finally, some of the lawyers more versed in psychology admitted that it was possible he had really not looked into the purse, and so didn't know what was in it when he hid it under the stone. But they immediately drew the deduction that the crime could only have been committed through temporary mental derangement, through homicidal mania, without object or the pursuit of gain. This fell in with the most recent fashionable theory of temporary insanity, so often applied in our days in criminal cases. Moreover, Raskolnikov's hypochondriacal condition was proved by many witnesses, by Dr. Zosimov, his former fellow-students, his landlady, and her servant. All this pointed strongly to the conclusion that Raskolnikov was not quite like an ordinary murderer and robber, but that there was another element in the case. To the intense annoyance of those who maintained this opinion, the criminal scarcely attempted to defend himself. 
to the decisive question as to what motive impelled him to the murder and the robbery, he answered very clearly with the coarsest frankness that the cause was his miserable position, his poverty and helplessness, and his desire to provide for his first steps in life by the help of the three thousand roubles he had reckoned on finding. He had been led to the murder through his shallow and cowardly nature, exasperated moreover by privation and failure. To the question what led him to confess, he answered that it was his heartfelt repentance. All this was almost coarse. The sentence, however, was more merciful than could have been expected, perhaps partly because the criminal had not tried to justify himself, but had rather shown a desire to exaggerate his guilt. All the strange and peculiar circumstances of the crime were taken into consideration. There could be no doubt of the abnormal and poverty-stricken condition of the criminal at the time. The fact that he had made no use of what he had stolen was put down partly to the effect of remorse, partly to his abnormal mental condition at the time of the crime. Incidentally, the murder of Lizaveta served indeed to confirm the last hypothesis. A man commits two murders and forgets that the door is open. Finally, the confession. At the very moment when the case was hopelessly muddled by the false evidence given by Nikolai through melancholy and fanaticism, and when, moreover, there were no proofs against the real criminal, no suspicions even, Porfiry Petrovitch fully kept his word. All this did much to soften the sentence. Other circumstances, too, in the prisoner's favor came out quite unexpectedly. Razumian somehow discovered and proved that while Raskolnikov was at the university, he had helped a poor consumptive fellow-student and had spent his last penny on supporting him for six months, and when this student died, leaving a decrepit old father whom he had maintained almost from his thirteenth year, Raskolnikov had got the old man into a hospital and paid for his funeral when he died. Raskolnikov's landlady bore witness, too, that when they had lived in another house at five corners, Raskolnikov had rescued two little children from a house on fire and was burnt in doing so. This was investigated and fairly well confirmed by many witnesses. These facts made an impression in his favor. And in the end the criminal was, in consideration of extenuating circumstances, condemned to penal servitude in the second class for a term of eight years only. At the very beginning of the trial, Raskolnikov's mother fell ill. Donya and Razumian found it possible to get her out of Petersburg during the trial. Razumian chose a town on the railway not far from Petersburg, so as to be able to follow every step of the trial and at the same time to see Avdotya Romanovna as often as possible. Pulcheria Alexandrovna's illness was a strange nervous one and was accompanied by a partial derangement of her intellect. When Donya returned from her last interview with her brother, she had found her mother already ill, in feverish delirium. That evening Razumian and she agreed what answers they must make to her mother's questions about Raskolnikov, and made up a complete story for her mother's benefit of his having to go away to a distant part of Russia on a business commission, which would bring him in the end money and reputation. But they were struck by the fact that Pulcheria Alexandrovna never asked them anything on the subject, neither then nor thereafter. On the contrary, she had her own version of her son's sudden departure. She told them with tears how he had come to say good-bye to her, hinting that she alone knew many mysterious and important facts, 
and that Rodya had many very powerful enemies, so that it was necessary for him to be in hiding. As for his future career, she had no doubt that it would be brilliant when certain sinister influences could be removed. She assured Razumian that her son would be one day a great statesman, that his article and brilliant literary talent proved it. This article she was continually reading, she even read it aloud, almost took it to bed with her, but scarcely asked where Rodya was, though the subject was obviously avoided by the others, which might have been enough to awaken her suspicions. They began to be frightened at last at Pulcheria Alexandrovna's strange silence on certain subjects. She did not, for instance, complain of getting no letters from him, though in previous years she had only lived on the hope of letters from her beloved Rodya. This was the cause of great uneasiness to Donia. The idea occurred to her that her mother suspected that there was something terrible in her son's fate, and was afraid to ask, for fear of hearing something still more awful. In any case, Donia saw clearly that her mother was not in full possession of her faculties. It happened once or twice, however, that Pulcheria Alexandrovna gave such a turn to the conversation that it was impossible to answer her without mentioning where Rodya was, and on receiving unsatisfactory and suspicious answers, she became at once gloomy and silent, and this mood lasted for a long time. Donia saw at last that it was hard to deceive her and came to the conclusion that it was better to be absolutely silent on certain points but it became more and more evident that the poor mother suspected something terrible. Donia remembered her brother's telling her that her mother had overheard her talking in her sleep on the night after her interview with Svidrigailov, and before the fatal day of the confession. Had not she made out something from that? Sometimes days and even weeks of gloomy silence and tears would be succeeded by a period of hysterical animation and the invalid would begin to talk almost incessantly of her son, of her hopes of his future. Her fancies were sometimes very strange. They humored her, pretending to agree with her, she saw perhaps that they were pretending, but she still went on talking. Five months after Raskolnikov's confession he was sentenced. Razumian and Sonia saw him in prison as often as it was possible. At last the moment of separation came. Donia swore to her brother that the separation should not be forever. Razumian did the same. Razumian, in his youthful ardor, had firmly resolved to lay the foundations at least of a secure livelihood during the next three or four years, and saving up a certain sum to emigrate to Siberia, a country rich in every natural resource and in need of workers, active men and capital. There they would settle in the town where Rodya was, and all together would begin a new life. They all wept at parting. Raskolnikov had been very dreamy for a few days before. He asked a great deal about his mother and was constantly anxious about her. He worried so much about her that it alarmed Donia. When he heard about his mother's illness, he became very gloomy. With Sonia, he was particularly reserved all the time. With the help of the money left to her by Svidrigailov, Sonia had long ago made her preparations to follow the party of convicts in which he was dispatched to Siberia. Not a word passed between Raskolnikov and her on the subject, but both knew it would be so. At the final leave-taking he smiled strangely at his sister's and Razumian's fervent anticipations of their happy future together when he should come out of prison. 
he predicted that their mother's illness would soon have a fatal ending. Sonia and he at last set off. Two months later Donya was married to Razumian. It was a quiet and sorrowful wedding. Porfiry Petrovich and Zosimov were invited, however. During all this period Razumian wore an air of resolute determination. Donya put implicit faith in his carrying out his plans, and indeed she could not but believe in him. He displayed a rare strength of will. Among other things he began attending university lectures again in order to take his degree. They were continually making plans for the future. Both counted on settling in Siberia within five years at least. Till then they rested their hopes on Sonia. Polcheria Alexandrovna was delighted to give her blessing to Donya's marriage with Razumian. But after the marriage she became even more melancholy and anxious. To give her pleasure, Razumian told her how Raskolnikov had looked after the poor student and his decrepit father, and how a year ago he had been burnt and injured in rescuing two little children from a fire. These two pieces of news excited Polcheria Alexandrovna's disordered imagination almost to ecstasy. She was continually talking about them, even entering into conversation with strangers in the street, though Donya always accompanied her. In public conveyances and shops, wherever she could capture a listener, she would begin the discourse about her son, his article, how he had helped the student, how he had been burnt at the fire, and so on. Donya did not know how to restrain her. Apart from the danger of her morbid excitement, there was the risk of someone's recalling Raskolnikov's name and speaking of the recent trial. Polcheria Alexandrovna found out the address of the mother of the two children her son had saved, and insisted on going to see her. At last her restlessness reached an extreme point. She would sometimes begin to cry suddenly and was often ill and feverishly delirious. One morning she declared that, by her reckoning, Rodya ought soon to be home, that she remembered when he said good-bye to her, he said that they must expect him back in nine months. She began to prepare for his coming, began to do up her room for him, to clean the furniture, to wash and put up new hangings and so on. Donya was anxious, but said nothing and helped her to arrange the room. After a fatiguing day spent in continual fancies, in joyful daydreams and tears, Pulcheria Alexandrovna was taken ill in the night, and by morning she was feverish and delirious. It was brain fever. She died within a fortnight. In her delirium she dropped words which showed that she knew a great deal more about her son's terrible fate than they had supposed. For a long time Raskolnikov did not know of his mother's death, though a regular correspondence had been maintained from the time he reached Siberia. It was carried on by means of Sonia, who wrote every month to the Razumians and received an answer with unfailing regularity. At first they found Sonia's letters dry and unsatisfactory, but later on they came to the conclusion that the letters could not be better, for from these letters they received a complete picture of their unfortunate brother's life. Sonia's letters were full of the most matter-of-fact detail, the simplest and clearest description of all Raskolnikov's surroundings as a convict. There was no word of her own hopes, no conjecture as to the future, no description of her feelings. Instead of any attempt to interpret his state of mind and inner life, she gave them the simple facts, that is, his own words, an exact account of his health, what he asked for at their interviews, what commission he gave her, and so on. 
All these facts she gave with extraordinary minuteness. The picture of their unhappy brother stood out at last with great clearness and precision. There could be no mistake, because nothing was given but facts. But Donia and her husband could get little comfort out of the news, especially at first. Sonia wrote that he was constantly sullen and not ready to talk, that he scarcely seemed interested in the news she gave him from their letters, that he sometimes asked after his mother, and that when, seeing that he had guessed the truth, she told him at last of her death, she was surprised to find that he did not seem greatly affected by it, not externally at any rate. She told him that, although he seemed so wrapped up in himself and, as it were, shut himself off from everyone, he took a very direct and simple view of his new life, that he understood his position, expecting nothing better for the time, had no ill-founded hopes, as is so common in his position, and scarcely seemed surprised at anything in his surroundings, so unlike anything he had known before. She wrote that his health was satisfactory. He did his work without shirking or seeking to do more. He was almost indifferent about food, but except on Sundays and holidays the food was so bad that at last he had been glad to accept some money from her, Sonia, to have his own tea every day. He begged her not to trouble about anything else, declaring that all this fuss about him only annoyed him. Sonia wrote further that in prison he shared the same room with the rest, that she had not seen the inside of their barracks but concluded that they were crowded, miserable, and unhealthy, that he slept on a plank bed with a rug under him and was unwilling to make any other arrangement, but that he lived so poorly and roughly, not from any plan or design but simply from inattention and indifference. Sonia wrote simply that he had at first shown no interest in her visits, had almost been vexed with her indeed for coming, unwilling to talk and rude to her. But that in the end these visits had become a habit and almost a necessity for him, so that he was positively distressed when she was ill for some days and could not visit him. She used to see him on holidays at the prison gates or in the guard-room, to which he was brought for a few minutes to see her. On working days she would go to see him at work, either at the workshops or at the brick-kilns or at the sheds on the banks of the Irtish. About herself, Sonia wrote that she had succeeded in making some acquaintances in the town, that she did sewing, and as there was scarcely a dressmaker in the town, she was looked upon as an indispensable person in many houses. But she did not mention that the authorities were, through her, interested in Raskolnikov, that his task was lightened and so on. At last the news came, Donia had indeed noticed signs of alarm and uneasiness in the preceding letters, that he held aloof from everyone, that his fellow-prisoners did not like him, that he kept silent for days at a time and was becoming very pale. In the last letter Sonia wrote that he had been taken very seriously ill and was in the convict ward of the hospital. 2. He was ill a long time but it was not the horrors of prison life, not the hard labor, the bad food, the shaven head, or the patched clothes that crushed him. What did he care for all those trials and hardships? He was even glad of the hard work. Physically exhausted, he could at least reckon on a few hours of quiet sleep. And what was the food to him, the thin cabbage soup with beetles floating in it? In the past, as a student, he had often not had even that. 
His clothes were warm and suited to his manner of life. He did not even feel the fetters. Was he ashamed of his shaven head and party-colored coat? Before whom? Before Sonia? Sonia was afraid of him. How could he be ashamed before her? And yet he was ashamed even before Sonia, whom he tortured because of it with his contemptuous rough manner. But it was not his shaven head and his fetters he was ashamed of. His pride had been stung to the quick. It was wounded pride that made him ill. Oh, how happy he would have been if he could have blamed himself! He could have borne everything then, even shame and disgrace. But he judged himself severely, and his exasperated conscience found no particularly terrible fault in his past, except a simple blunder which might happen to anyone. He was ashamed just because he, Raskolnikov, had so hopelessly, stupidly come to grief through some decree of blind fate, and must humble himself and submit to the idiocy of a sentence, if he were anyhow to be at peace. Vague and objectless anxiety in the present, and in the future a continual sacrifice leading to nothing. That was all that lay before him. And what comfort was it to him that at the end of eight years he would only be thirty-two and able to begin a new life? What had he to live for? What had he to look forward to? Why should he strive? To live in order to exist? Why, he had been ready a thousand times before to give up existence for the sake of an idea, for a hope, even for a fancy. Mere existence had always been too little for him. He had always wanted more. Perhaps it was just because of the strength of his desires that he had thought himself a man to whom more was permissible than to others. And if only fate would have sent him repentance, burning repentance, that would have torn his heart and robbed him of sleep, that repentance, the awful agony of which brings visions of hanging or drowning. Oh, he would have been glad of it! Tears and agonies would at least have been life but he did not repent of his crime. At least he might have found relief in raging at his stupidity, as he had raged at the grotesque blunders that had brought him to prison. But now in prison, in freedom, he thought over and criticized all his actions again, and by no means found them so blundering and so grotesque as they had seemed at the fatal time. In what way, he asked himself, was my theory stupider than others that have swarmed and clashed from the beginning of the world? One has only to look the thing quite independently, broadly, and uninfluenced by commonplace ideas, and my idea will by no means seem so strange. O oh, skeptics and halfpenny philosophers, why do you halt halfway? Why does my action strike them as so horrible? he said to himself. Is it because it was a crime? What is meant by crime? My conscience is at rest. Of course it was a legal crime. Of course the letter of the law was broken and blood was shed. Well, punish me for the letter of the law, and that's enough. Of course, in that case, many of the benefactors of mankind who snatched power for themselves instead of inheriting it ought to have been punished at their first steps. But those men succeeded, and so they were right and I didn't, and so I had no right to have taken that step. It was only in that that he recognized his criminality, only in the fact that he had been unsuccessful and had confessed it. He suffered too from the question, 
Why had he not killed himself? Why had he stood looking at the river and preferred to confess? Was the desire to live so strong, and was it so hard to overcome it? Had not Svidrigailov overcome it, although he was afraid of death? In misery he asked himself this question, and could not understand that, at the very time he had been standing looking into the river, he had perhaps been dimly conscious of the fundamental falsity in himself and his convictions. He didn't understand that that consciousness might be the promise of a future crisis, of a new view of life and of his future resurrection. He preferred to attribute it to the dead weight of instinct which he could not step over, again through weakness and meanness. He looked at his fellow-prisoners and was amazed to see how they all loved life and prized it. It seemed to him that they loved and valued life more in prison than in freedom. What terrible agonies and privations some of them, the tramps for instance, had endured! Could they care so much for a ray of sunshine, for the primeval forest, the cold spring hidden away in some unseen spot which the tramp had marked three years before, and longed to see again as he might to see his sweetheart dreaming of the green grass round it and the birds singing in the bush? As he went on he saw still more inexplicable examples. In prison, of course, there was a great deal he did not see and did not want to see. He lived, as it were, with downcast eyes. It was loathsome and unbearable for him to look. But in the end there was much that surprised him and he began, as it were, involuntarily, to notice much that he had not suspected before. What surprised him most of all was the terrible impossible gulf that lay between him and all the rest. They seemed to be a different species and he looked at them and they at him with distrust and hostility. He felt and knew the reasons of his isolation, but he would never have admitted till then that those reasons were so deep and strong. There were some Polish exiles, political prisoners among them. They simply looked down upon all the rest as ignorant churls, but Raskolnikov could not look upon them like that. He saw that these ignorant men were in many respects far wiser than the Poles. There were some Russians who were just as contemptuous, a former officer and two seminarists. Raskolnikov saw their mistakes as clearly. He was disliked and avoided by everyone. They even began to hate him at last. Why, he could not tell. Men who had been far more guilty despised and laughed at his crime. "'You're a gentleman,' they used to say. You shouldn't hack about with an axe. That's not a gentleman's work." The second week in Lent his turn came to take the sacrament with his gang. He went to church and prayed with the others. A quarrel broke out one day, he did not know how, all fell on him at once in a fury. "'You're an infidel! You don't believe in God!' they shouted. "'You ought to be killed!' He had never talked to them about God nor his belief but they wanted to kill him as an infidel. He said nothing. One of the prisoners rushed at him in a perfect frenzy. Raskolnikov awaited him calmly and silently. His eyebrows did not quiver, his face did not flinch. The guard succeeded in intervening between him and his assailant, or there would have been bloodshed. There was another question he could not decide. Why were they all so fond of Sonia? She did not try to win their favor. She rarely met them, sometimes only she came to see him at work for a moment. And yet everybody knew her. They knew that she had come out to follow him, 
knew how and where she lived. She never gave them money, did them no particular services. Only once at Christmas she sent them all presents of pies and rolls. But by degrees closer relations sprang up between them and Sonia. She would write and post letters for them to their relations. Relations of the prisoners who visited the town, at their instructions, left with Sonia presents and money for them. Their wives and sweethearts knew her and used to visit her. And when she visited Raskolnikov at work, or met a party of the prisoners on the road, they all took off their hats to her. "'Little mother Sofia Semyonovna, you are our dear good little mother,' coarse-branded criminal said to that frail little creature. She would smile and bow to them, and everyone was delighted when she smiled. They even admired her gait and turned round to watch her walking. They admired her, too, for being so little, and, in fact, did not know what to admire her most for. They even came to her for help in their illnesses. He was in the hospital from the middle of Lent till after Easter. When he was better, he remembered the dreams he had had while he was feverish and delirious. He dreamt that the whole world was condemned to a terrible new strange plague that had come to Europe from the depths of Asia. All were to be destroyed except a very few chosen. Some new sorts of microbes were attacking the bodies of men, but these microbes were endowed with intelligence and will. Men attacked by them became at once mad and furious. But never had men considered themselves so intellectual and so completely in possession of the truth as these sufferers, never had they considered their decisions, their scientific conclusions, their moral convictions so infallible. Whole villages, whole towns and peoples went mad from the infection. All were excited and did not understand one another. Each thought that he alone had the truth and was wretched looking at the others, beat himself on the breast, wept and wrung his hands. They did not know how to judge and could not agree what to consider evil and what good. They did not know whom to blame, whom to justify. Men killed each other in a sort of senseless spite. They gathered together in armies against one another, but even on the march the armies would begin attacking each other, the ranks would be broken and the soldiers would fall on each other, stabbing and cutting, biting and devouring each other. The alarm bell was ringing all day long in the towns. Men rushed together, but why they were summoned and who was summoning them no one knew. The most ordinary trades were abandoned, because everyone proposed his own ideas, his own improvements, and they could not agree. The land, too, was abandoned. Men met in groups, agreed on something, swore to keep together, but at once began on something quite different from what they had proposed. They accused one another, fought and killed each other. There were conflagrations and famine. All men and all things were involved in destruction. The plague spread and moved further and further. Only a few men could be saved in the whole world. They were a pure, chosen people destined to found a new race and a new life, to renew and purify the earth, but no one had seen these men, no one had heard their words and their voices. Raskolnikov was worried that this senseless dream haunted his memory so miserably, the impression of this feverish delirium persisted so long. The second week after, Easter had come. There were warm, bright spring days. In the prison ward the grating windows under which the sentinel paced were opened. Sonia had only been able to visit him twice during his illness. Each time she had to obtain permission, 
and it was difficult. But she often used to come to the hospital yard, especially in the evening, sometimes only to stand a minute and look up at the windows of the ward. One evening, when he was almost well again, Raskolnikov fell asleep. On waking up he chanced to go to the window, and at once saw Sonia in the distance at the hospital gate. She seemed to be waiting for someone. Something stabbed him to the heart at that minute. He shuddered and moved away from the window. Next day Sonia did not come, nor the day after. He noticed that he was expecting her uneasily. At last he was discharged. On reaching the prison he learnt from the convicts that Sofia Semyonovna was lying ill at home and was unable to go out. He was very uneasy and sent to inquire after her. He soon learnt that her illness was not dangerous. Hearing that he was anxious about her, Sonia sent him a penciled note, telling him that she was much better, that she had a slight cold and that she would soon, very soon, come and see him at his work. His heart throbbed painfully as he read it. Again it was a warm, bright day. Early in the morning, at six o'clock, he went off to work on the river bank, where they used to pound alabaster and where there was a kiln for baking it in a shed. There were only three of them sent. One of the convicts went with the guard to the fortress to fetch a tool. The other began getting the wood ready and laying it in the kiln. Raskolnikov came out of the shed onto the river bank sat down on a heap of logs by the shed and began gazing at the wide deserted river. From the high bank a broad landscape opened before him, the sound of singing floated faintly audible from the other bank. In the vast steppe, bathed in sunshine, he could just see, like black specks, the nomads' tents. There there was freedom, there other men were living, utterly unlike those here. There time itself seemed to stand still as though the age of Abraham and his flocks had not passed. Raskolnikov sat gazing, his thoughts passed into daydreams, into contemplation. He thought of nothing, but a vague restlessness excited and troubled him. Suddenly he found Sonia beside him. She had come up noiselessly and sat down at his side. It was still quite early, the morning chill was still keen. She wore her poor old burnous and the green shawl. Her face still showed signs of illness, it was thinner and paler. She gave him a joyful smile of welcome, but held out her hand with her usual timidity. She was always timid of holding out her hand to him and sometimes did not offer it at all, as though afraid he would repel it. He always took her hand as though with repugnance, always seemed vexed to meet her and was sometimes obstinately silent throughout her visit. Sometimes she trembled before him and went away deeply grieved. But now their hands did not part. He stole a rapid glance at her and dropped his eyes on the ground without speaking. They were alone, no one had seen them. The guard had turned away for the time. How it happened he did not know. But all at once something seemed to seize him and fling him at her feet. He wept and threw his arms round her knees. For the first instant she was terribly frightened and she turned pale. She jumped up and looked at him trembling. But at the same moment she understood, and a light of infinite happiness came into her eyes. She knew and had no doubt that he loved her beyond everything, and that at last the moment had come. They wanted to speak, but could not. Tears stood in their eyes. They were both pale and thin 
but those sick pale faces were bright with the dawn of a new future, of a full resurrection into a new life. There they were renewed by love, the heart of each held infinite sources of life for the heart of the other. They resolved to wait and be patient. They had another seven years to wait, and what terrible suffering and what infinite happiness before them. But he had risen again, and he knew it and felt it in all his being, while she, she only lived in his life. On the evening of the same day, when the barracks were locked, Raskolnikov lay on his plank bed and thought of her. He had even fancied that day that all the convicts who had been his enemies looked at him differently. He had even entered into talk with them, and they answered him in a friendly way. He remembered that now, and thought it was bound to be so. Wasn't everything now bound to be changed? He thought of her. He remembered how continually he had tormented her and wounded her heart. He remembered her pale and thin little face. But these recollections scarcely troubled him now. He knew with what infinite love he would now repay all her sufferings. And what were all, all the agonies of the past? Everything, even his crime, his sentence and imprisonment, seemed to him now in the first rush of feeling an external, strange fact with which he had no concern. But he could not think for long together of anything that evening, and he could not have analyzed anything consciously. He was simply feeling. Life had stepped into the place of theory and something quite different would work itself out in his mind. Under his pillow lay the New Testament. He took it up mechanically. The book belonged to Sonia. It was the one from which she had read the raising of Lazarus to him. At first he was afraid that she would worry him about religion, would talk about the gospel and pester him with books. But to his great surprise she had not once approached the subject and had not even offered him the testament. He had asked her for it himself, not long before his illness, and she brought him the book without a word. Till now he had not opened it. He did not open it now, but one thought passed through his mind. Can her convictions not be mine now? Her feelings, her aspirations at least? She too had been greatly agitated that day, and at night she was taken ill again. But she was so happy, and so unexpectedly happy, that she was almost frightened of her happiness. Seven years, only seven years. At the beginning of their happiness, at some moments, they were both ready to look on those seven years as though they were seven days. He did not know that the new life would not be given him for nothing, that he would have to pay dearly for it, that it would cost him great striving, great suffering. But that is the beginning of a new story, the story of the gradual renewal of a man, the story of his gradual regeneration, of his passing from one world into another, of his initiation into a new, unknown life. That might be the subject of a new story, but our present story is ended. The End of Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.